Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, Holiday Stories 13, you'll hear Vin Brew. All of the adults in my family were just standing there silently consoling children while glaring at me with this look in their eyes that very clearly said, What the fuck is wrong with you? Can't you do anything right? That and more, but first... The next Risk live stream show is on Friday, January 15th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. You can get tickets at risk-show.com tour. And don't forget that a hugely creative, therapeutic, and social activity that you can take on in 2021 is storytelling. Come take workshops with us at thestorystudio.org. You could be a total newcomer, or you could be an old pro. There's nothing like sharing about your most meaningful life experiences with fellow students and faculty who are there to support and encourage and inspire you. And we do workshops for businesses and organizations of all kinds, too, at thestorystudio.org. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. Behind me now is the Red Baron remix of the Berlin Symphony Orchestra. And this is Holiday Stories 13, our 13th Winter Holidays special. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'm so thrilled with how wonderful this episode is. <laughs> I mean, it might sound like I'm tooting my own horn, but you guys don't see me behind the scenes like our staff does. They get to hear all the moaning and crying and stressing out about the worries about keeping risk running and all. And this year, they've had to see the boss pretty worried and consternated uh but it's days like today when i'm putting together an episode like this and and thinking god damn it we did it again you know what i mean like we have always been a fly by the seat of your pants sort of outfit here just you know almost like guerrilla indie filmmaking where it's just like never mind what we lack in resources we're gonna make it happen and we always do and I'm proud. <laughs> and I'm grateful for the whole Risk team and all the people who have shared stories this year and you guys, the fans. I know we've all had such a rough year, but we've all had this show to come back to, to share. I know these stories have helped me make it through this year. And I hope they have you too. 
So, let's dive in. In a little bit, you're going to hear a story from yours truly, but before that, we're going to hear a story from Amy Brooks in St. Louis. And before Amy, we're going to hear another story returning to the show, Vin Brew. Vin can be found on Instagram at Vin Brew, and here he is now with a story we call Elf on the Mother Effin' Shelf. So eight years ago, my wife and I were in a pretty terrible place. More specifically, the Cheesecake Factory at the Short Hills Mall in New Jersey at Christmas time with my entire family. Everyone was already on edge when we got there because there was an hour-long wait to be seated. My parents are complaining the music's too loud and it's too cold. And my sister's three young boys are bouncing off the walls. And my brother's baby's crying. And I'm just trying to put my head down and not draw any attention to myself, which is tough because... My family pretty much thinks everything I do is weird. Like, I ordered fish tacos, and immediately my dad's like, Fish tacos? What in the hell? Like, what, are you on a diet or something? You know, because unless you're eating half a pound of raw beef for dinner every night, you're a goddamn communist pussy. So I'm just trying to power through until it's time to go back to my sister's house for dessert. But at some point, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I was like, hey, uh, we parked really far away, so better get a head start so we can meet you guys back at the house. I don't think anybody actually bought that, but they were like, yeah, whatever, just get out of here. So we get up to leave, and as I'm walking past my dad, he pulls me aside and whispers in my ear, Hey, if you get to the house before us, hide Dingle. And he winks at me, and I'm like, what the f- Hide Dingle? Like, is this some kind of old-timey euphemism? Like, is my dad encouraging me to have sex with my wife in my sister's house before everyone gets there? Because that's weird. So I'm like, huh? And then he goes, the elf, you gotta hide the elf. And he winks at me again, and I'm like, okay, is he calling my dick the elf now? Because that's not okay either. Like, what's going on here? Is he having an aneurysm? And that's when he explained Elf on the Shelf to me. Yes, Dingle was apparently the name of my sister's kid's Elf on the Shelf. If you're unfamiliar, like I was, Elf on the Shelf is this relatively new Christmas tradition where parents tell their kids that this creepy elf doll is spying on them and reporting back to Santa to make sure that they behave. And then whenever the kids go out, the parents hide the elf in a new spot so that when the kids come back, they think that the elf has magically flown itself wherever it ended up. It's weird but not as weird as the conversation I thought we were having, so I happily agreed to hide Dingle. So my wife and I get to my sister's house before everyone else because, of course, we hadn't actually parked that far away. And we walk in, and I see Dingle dangling from the ceiling fan, and I grab him, and I start looking for a hiding spot. Now, I really want to do a good job with this. You know, I take pride in my work, and I also want to prove to my family that I am not a total moron and I am capable of handling simple tasks. But most importantly, I want to see my nephew's faces light up when they walk in the door and see that Dingle's flown to a new hiding spot and really experience the magic of Christmas again through their eyes. So I'm looking around, and I see these two sconces above the fireplace, and I'm like, ooh, that's perfect. So I put Dingle in one of the sconces, and he fits nice and snug in there, and his arms are hanging over the side, and his smile is all lit up nice, and 
I actually took a picture of it and put it on Instagram with the caption elf on the mother and shelf because Uncle Vin's hip, kids, he's with it. And then I sat on the couch, basking in the glow of a job well done, waiting for my nephews to burst through the door, which they did a few minutes later. And I watched as my eight-year-old nephew's face turned from excitement to horror as he yelled out, Dangle! No! And that's when I smelled the burning. Yep, apparently Dingle had flown a little too close to the sun. Or the light bulb, in this case. And he was on fire. Yeah, I looked over and saw a huge plume of smoke billowing out from the sconce, and I was like, oh, shit. So I jump up, and I run over to try to save Dingle, and that's when my nephew starts screaming at me, don't touch him, no, you can't touch him. If you touch him, he's going to lose his magical powers. And I was like, oh, shit, uh, 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 okay, well, uh, I don't want Dingle to lose his magical powers, certainly, but I also don't want you guys to lose your house, so sorry, kids. So I grab Dingle out of the sconce and throw him on the floor, and I just start stomping on him, and the kids start going nuts, like, why, why, Mom, why would Dingle do that? Why would he light himself on fire? They think he put himself there. They don't know that I did that, so to them, Dingle just decided to self-immolate. So they're screaming, and then the rest of my family rushes in to see what all the commotion is, only to find me trampling this poor elf in front of my traumatized nephews in a room full of smoke. So after I finally extinguished Dingle, I shamefully looked up, and all of the adults in my family were just standing there silently consoling children while glaring at me with this look in their eyes that very clearly said, What the fuck is wrong with you? Can't you do anything right? And the answer is no, apparently. I don't know, man. I thought it was a great hiding spot. Okay, had I known Dingo was so flammable, probably would have made a better choice there. But uh, hey, hindsight is twenty twenty, is it not? Anyway, that's the story of how Uncle Vin ruined Christmas. And why now, every holiday season, I just have one phrase floating through my head. Poor Dingle. Poor, poor Dingle. Happy holidays, everybody. What will go into the Christmas stocking? Turkey, jelly, and the ship's old cooks. An ass and an ox. And a lamb, plain and good. Roy the butcher's boy, all whittled in wood. A white sugar dove. And tanks and guns that made a noise. A handful of love. Pigs in their smelly pens. And bricks and dolls and cuddly toys. Come morning you'll wake to the clock's tick-tocking. And that's what you'll find in the Christmas stocking and a for me Bring the noise! Come, they told him, A newborn king to see, Pa-rum-pa-pum-pum Our finest gifts to bring, Pa-rum-pa-pum-pum To lay before the king,
So everyone, please welcome to the virtual stage, Amy Brooks. Hi, thanks for having me. So 1973 started out with like a lot of promise in my family. I was a member of a family in a small town in southeast Missouri. I had my mom, who was kind of a really practical adult who made sure we ate, showered, and showed up on time places. And my dad, who was real invested in everybody having a good time and making sure that all the fun that could be had was had. He loved practical jokes. He loved to get up on Saturday mornings and sit on the floor and eat cereal and watch Saturday morning cartoons. And he was totally the fun parent. And the three of us kind of formed a three-legged stool. And we were very sturdy. But we would learn later in the year that if you knocked one of those legs out, everything got a little wobbly. Mm. And we were all pretty excited about 1973 because we were going to have a baby, my brother. And um, sure enough, just on schedule in March, he showed up. He wasn't very little, but he was a baby. <laughs> and uh, we embarked on this new life that we were going to have as a quartet instead of a trio. And everything was going great. My mom was staying home on an extended maternity leave with him. And one morning in June of 1973, my dad got up early because he was an over-the-road truck driver. And he needed to leave for work. And for the first time and the only time ever, he got me out of my bed and put me in bed with my mom, which was unprecedented. It never happened before. And by 9.30 that day, my family got a call. My grandpa happened to be the police dispatcher in town, and he got a call from another state saying that there had been a terrible accident and my dad had been instantly killed. And our whole family blew up at that point. We um, left the little house that we lived in, and we moved in with my mom's parents. And my grandparents pitched in with me and my brother so that my mom would have the opportunity to kind of get her feet underneath her before she had to think about things like going back to work and childcare and all of those things. And we lived there about six months. And at the end of six months, we'd gotten a small workman's compensation settlement, and we were able to purchase the house directly across the street from my grandparents. Now, if you're a kid and you have the opportunity to live directly across the street from your grandparents, I highly recommend it. <laughs> if your mom gets super offensive and just is not being reasonable, you can totally run away from home. It's really like 300 feet. Um, if dinner rolls around and you don't like what she's making, you can totally survey the neighbors across the street, see what they're having, and you have that possibility of eating there, which... Clearly, I did on many occasions. So, Christmas time rolls around. We're in our little house, and it was a simple little house. Not very big. Certainly not very flashy. And Christmas is starting to kind of register on my radar, and I realize that my dad is going to be by himself out in the cemetery with no Christmas decorations and no presents. So, I tell my mom that the thing I'd like to do is take out a tree, put it up, and take out Christmas presents, and we could do Christmas morning out there and open presents with my dad. Now, my mom is a pretty tough cookie, but I'm sure that was kind of heartbreaking for her to have to figure out how to deal with my five-year-old logic and help me find something else to do besides celebrate Christmas in a cemetery. So she had this brother, Uncle Donnie, and she was telling him about this. Now, Uncle Donnie... Pretty colorful. Good old boy. Liked to hunt stuff and fish stuff and eat the stuff he hunted and fished. 
And <laughs> he really, his main hobby, though, was drinking. And he was actually an alcoholic, but he was kind of one of those happy-go-lucky alcoholics. He would eventually get sober and do what all alcoholics should do, which is purchase a bar in town, which he owned for many years. And as far as I know, never relapsed. But he and my mom were discussing this, and he had property with some buddies of his that they hunted on all the time. And I'm sure just generally did other things we'd like to not think about. He had been out there to check on things, and he had found this hunting cabin. They had kind of, it was more of a shack, hunting shack they had put up years before to kind of take cover when they were out there if the weather returned. And he discovered that there was a man living in it with his two sons, who were seven and five. And he told my mom that it really broke his heart because they didn't have anything, and they had a little tree in the corner but it was dry because they didn't have a tree stand and they didn't have any ornaments. So the plan was concocted that the thing to do was to take me to the local Ben Franklin, which if you don't have a Ben Franklin in your little town, you've never lived. Um, you can buy like Vaseline and chickens at the same time. And um, we went to the store and we bought the seven-year-old a football. I thought he would rather have a Barbie, but we went with the football. <laughs> and we bought the five-year-old a red and blue metal toolbox that had little toy tools in it, like a saw and a screwdriver and a hammer. And my mom helped me wrap those. And then my mom and my grandma and I went to the grocery store, which I thought seemed lame, but they were pretty excited about. And we bought groceries for these guys. And we bought kind of things that they could cook without heat. We gathered all of this up on the appointed day, and my uncle came to pick me up, which was kind of exciting because I didn't usually go places with him because my mom didn't like me riding with alcoholics, frankly. <laughs> so we load up in the truck, which smelled like axle grease and beer, and we head out into the country as far as I had ever been out in the middle of nowhere. And finally, after what seemed like forever, we came across this shack, it was very cold that day. It was pretty close to Christmas. And we opened the door. And the thing that struck me was, you know how you open a door during winter and the inside is warmer? <laughs> it was just less windy. It wasn't really any warmer. And it wasn't that much less windy. And I found myself in this shack that had been constructed, I'm sure, with more alcohol than architecture. And it was just wood that didn't quite always meet. So there were lots of gaps. And it had a dirt floor. And it had no running water, it had no bathroom, it had no electricity. And it was lit by these lanterns that they had, and they had a camp stove in the corner that they were trying to kind of keep warm with, and they had their little tree, and that was really about it. So they all slept in this one room. So we went in and we gave them their gifts, and they were pretty excited about the gifts. I mean, I didn't understand it. It wasn't a Barbie or a Mrs. Beasley doll, but... They seemed excited about it, so we gave them those gifts, and then we decorated their tree. My mom had gathered up some Christmas ornaments, and so I helped them decorate their little tree, and they were super pumped about that, and it looked a lot like Charlie Brown's tree, so I didn't really get it. And then we gave them the groceries, and when we gave them the groceries, this was what took their breath away. They were mesmerized by canned goods. The thing that they were most stunned by were we had picked up a bag of oranges and they couldn't believe they were actually getting oranges. And I couldn't believe they couldn't believe that they were getting oranges. 
But then I did later see an episode of Little House on the Prairie where Mr. Edwards gives Laura and Mary some oranges, and they were equally excited. So in retrospect, I think maybe I was just missing something there. But (laughs) we finished up their Christmas, and we rode back into town. My uncle took me back to my house, and I'll never forget walking up my sidewalk and opening my front door, and the wave of heat that rolled out and kind of greeted me and made me feel warm and cared for and loved. And then I walked into this little two-bedroom, honestly, it was like four rooms in a bathroom house. And in the corner was this tree that had lights and ornaments and tinsel, every conceivable decoration you could think of. And underneath that tree, well, let me say this, there are some advantages to having a death in your family at the holidays. Because people want you to feel better, and they feel like gifts and prizes are the way to go. And when you're five, that seems pretty good. And underneath this tree, every friend we had, every relative we had, my mom, everybody that could think of had brought us something. So our tree was packed with gifts. And we would go to sleep that night, and we woke up the next morning. Mrs. Beasley had arrived. It was epic. I still have it. (laughs) Brad and I got... (laughs) Bert and Ernie Muppet Puppets, which who knew that could even be a thing? (laughs) And we had this joyous, happy, fulfilled Christmas. And yet that whole day, I just kept thinking about those boys and those oranges and that cabin. And I couldn't help, even as a five-year-old, to be struck by the contrast between Mm. my reality and their reality. And ever since then, we've made an effort every year in our family to try to be a blessing and I hope that somebody tries to be your blessing this year, too. Thanks. I'm gonna lasso Santa Claus And I know just why because I'm gonna pull, pull, pull on his beard Pull, pull and see if it's real I'm gonna tick, tick, tickle him on the tummy Because he laughs so funny When he comes around Christmas time I'm on lasso Santa Claus And the reason is because I know a boy and girl He never goes see He never brings them toys like he does to me I'm gonna pop, pop Santa Claus With my water pistol gun Bang, bang, and then I'll take his bags of toys And run and bring to all the kids who don't have none thing I love about Christmas is that it reminds us to cherish memories. It reminds us how good for the soul it can be to just take the time to remember some of the better times you've had. But also when it comes to my family, it reminds me that memories aren't always that accurate. (laughs) Well, it was absolutely my parents 
that instilled in me that love of telling stories about old memories. And, you know, they always just loved old things with sentimental value, old buildings, old art and music, old traditions. You know, when I would come home from NYU when I was in college, it always felt so grounding to come back home and see the place once again all done up in these like Renaissance era and Victorian era decorations, each one with a story behind it. And then I've talked on the podcast before about how in the 60s and 70s, my dad was into the civil rights movement. And in the 70s, he became very curious, very interested about the black power movement. And one year he got this Christmas tree ornament, which was a black Santa with a raised fist. And on the bottom it said, with a big exclamation point, black is beautiful. And so that was always hanging on the tree. I remember around about like 1990 or something like that, a friend came over and said, that ornament is interesting. And I said, yeah, it was the 70s. Then there was a year when my mom was obsessed with the show Little House on the Prairie. And this year she went to various thrift stores around town and then sewed together for everyone in the family. This is you know, five children in the family. Pioneer era clothes so that we could take a sepia toned family portrait. And I remember her saying, don't smile, kids. Pretend somebody died. So they weren't pretentious about celebrating things of the past. They were creative about it. So there's a story in my family that goes like this. Or at least this is the way it goes in my brain. In 1970, when I wasn't yet one year old, the family was gathered around the television set in the living room to watch A Charlie Brown Christmas, when my father got an idea. Now, if you remember in the TV special, Charlie Brown complains that Christmas has become too modern and too commercialized, because everyone's getting fake Christmas trees. And Dad, he was so struck by that. He said, damn it, Charlie Brown is right. You know what? Let's stop getting our Christmas trees from a parking lot behind the mall. Let's go into the heart of the country, into the great American wilderness, to chop down a tree with our own bare hands. And my mom said, Paul, I, I think that's a federal crime. And it was. So dad started researching about the great American wilderness and discovered that if we took a two and a half hour drive from Ohio into Indiana, he heard that there was an old farmer who lived up on a mountain who would let people chop down his trees. You could cut them down yourself. So perfect. Now, we were also a very Catholic family, a very Catholic family. And dad learned that going back to like medieval times, 
you really are supposed to bless the tree. So dad said, oh man, we're going to need a priest. But dad had gone to grade school with a buddy who happened to be almost identical looking to dad and who had become a priest, Father Harry, who was Harry, like dad. Two giant men with giant bellies and big bushy red beards. So dad called the church and said, Harry, here's the plan. It's going to be you and my family. You're going to lead us through the first half of a Catholic mass in our living room. Then we're going to get in the car and put on an eight-track tape of Handel's Messiah while we ride out to this mountain a few hours away and chop down a tree. And then we'll bring the tree back, do the second part of the mass in the living room, and then we'll have lasagna. And that's exactly what we did. (laughs) And everyone thought it was so great that that's exactly how we did it every year for 30 years. But every year, mom or dad would be talking to some other family and be like, oh my God, we would love to have you come along. So that by the time I was in junior high, there were way too many people for the living room that people were just all over the house. I remember one year where there were people going up the stairs to the second floor of the house so that, you know, Father Harry would have to be shouting (laughs) the mass throughout the entire house. A lot of the kids from other families who were attending this, they didn't get all of this. I mean, it's bizarre Alice in family tradition. By far and away, the least popular thing was doing the second half of the mass after this epic day of traveling and being outdoors and everything. Everyone comes home exhausted. It was often snowing and all that sort of thing. But my mom loved that we split a mass in half that way because then if any of us was misbehaving on the car ride, up on the mountain, whatever it was, she could say, we are in the middle of a mass. And that was generally accepted as Oh, shoot, yeah, she's right. But us Allison kids would always reassure any other kids who were along for the day, listen, at the end of the day, it's all going to be worth it because the lasagna. Then we'd drive out to Indiana listening to Handel's Messiah, and we'd just be a convoy of station wagon after station wagon after station wagon, you know, heading out into the great American wilderness. But most years, there was some sort of fiasco. And these, these are the memories that my family loves to pour over nowadays. For one thing, my dad was just obsessed with getting the biggest tree possible, and nine out of ten times, we couldn't get the goddamn thing in the house. You know, we would have to chop the thing up in order to get it in. I remember there was a year where the top of the tree had to be chopped off so that it kind of looked like maybe it was going through the ceiling into the next floor of the house. 
and the branches reaching into other rooms. <laughs> one year, one of these monstrosities on the car ride home, you know, somewhere on the interstate, one of these trees fell off the roof of our orange VW van and nearly decapitated Father Harry driving in the car right behind us. But whenever we go over these memories, Dad would always say, no, no, no. It was Harry's tree that almost decapitated me. But no one really remembered because, you know, for one thing, they looked the same anyway. Another year, that orange VW van... I don't know what happened. The transmission broke or something like that, and we had to make the drive home going like 10 miles an hour. That might have also been the year that the Messiah tape busted on us as well. And the best we could find to replace it was George Harrison, My Sweet Lord. But I remember falling in love with that song that day. Another year... One of the Allison boys got lost on the mountain, and there were hours spent desperately searching for the missing boy. But my family can never agree whether it was Peter or David or me. And another year, one of the Allison girls was walking on a frozen pond up on the mountain and fell through the ice into the water. And had to be rescued. But again, the family can't get on the same page about it. No one can agree whether it was Mia or Becca or me. But the one word that always comes up when the family reminisces about the old Christmas tree hunt is the verb shat. Someone will say, oh, those were the greatest memories, those Allison family Christmas tree hunts. I'll never forget them. Wasn't it Becca that shat on dad's lap on the car ride up one year and we were all dying someone else will say oh yeah unforgettable but no i thought it was kevin who shat on mom's lap on the car ride back someone else will say no i remember it like it was yesterday but i thought it was mia who shat on david's lap so we do cherish the memories even if we can never come to a consensus on the details but we do know that one of the years or some of the years, or all of the years, one of us, or some of us, or all of us, shat in each other's laps. Mom made beans for dinner, you know I ate them all. Said come get your coat on, going to the mall. You're gonna visit Santa, and sit upon his knee. But all that I could think about was how not to cut the cheese. Waiting there for Santa, I thought that I'd explode. The gas bubble grew bigger with every ho, ho, ho. Tried my best to hide it, that I was doing swell. But when I sat down on Santa's lap, he hollered, what's that smell? I farted on Santa's lap.
This is Risk. This is Jimmy Eat World behind me now. And before that, we heard from the Little Stinkers. Before that, a little story from me that was edited by Jeff Barr. Before that, a song by Brenda Lee. And before that, we heard from Amy Brooks in St. Louis. Before that, Little Breakbeat Boy by Divide and Create. And before that, What's in Our Christmas Stocking by VVM. Whole lot of creativity happening in this episode. How can you help ensure that Risk keeps on creating episodes as awesome as this one? We're still standing, but we still need all the help we can possibly get from those who feel the show bring something valuable to their lives. Become a member at patreon.com slash risk and you'll have access to so much more bonus content. We're putting a compilation of three holiday anecdotes up this week where you'll hear Victoria Dim. I turn the burners off to assess the damage. There are Pyrex glass shards everywhere. And Liz Esposito and Gabe Pearson are also on that compilation. And I'll be posting an end-of-the-year check-in on Patreon soon. And if you'd rather not become a member at Patreon, but would like to make a one-time donation, you can do that at paypal.me slash risk show. In a little bit, we're going to have Jude Trader Wolf returning to the show. But before that, a story from Rob Penty. You can find Rob at actually it's robpenty.org.com. <laughs> That's very confusing. It's spelled out actually it's robpenty.org, D O T O R G.com. Anyway, Rob shared his story at a recent live stream of ours, and it's just phenomenal. It's called Solstice. But I know what you're thinking. We can't rush right into a Rob Penty story before hearing something from King of Pants and Bang Bang Lulu. Well, all right then.
Hey, everybody. Thanks. So I go home for Christmas every year on December 23rd. I go home to Rochester, New York, where I'm from. It just sort of works out that way because I try to make it back for this Christmas Eve party that I've been attending since I was in the seventh grade. And this story takes place around the early aughts. And it was just after 9-11. So when I went home for Christmas, I actually took an Amtrak because I was too afraid to fly. And uh, that might sound like a little crazy, but I assure you at the time, I did not think it was crazy at all. Anxiety runs in my family. I get that from my mom. I think all the fiery stuff of my personality comes from my mom. Uh, from her, I get my anxiety, my temper, my ability to hold a grudge. Uh, but I also get all of my performance energy, I think, and a little bit of my sense of humor. And from my dad, I got crooked teeth and math. And this year in particular was pretty awesome because I was getting an iPod for Christmas. My parents had agreed to get me an iPod and I went out and bought it myself because they knew that I could buy it better than they could and they would just reimburse me later. And so I went and loaded up every single piece of music I had on it and I was ready for this trip. It was going to be awesome. I would just sit back, relax listen to every single song I've ever heard in my entire life and just chill on the way to Rochester. And the best part of this plan is I was going to be getting home at about 6 p.m., which was perfect because my mother was working that day and she got off at about 5.30. So if I got home at 6, I knew that when I got home that she would be sober. And that's how I wanted to start this Christmas vacation. Um, so you guys know the movie Gremlins, right? Which I consider to be a Christmas movie. Uh, there are rules with the Gremlins. Uh, no bright lights. Uh, don't get them wet. And whatever you do, do not feed them after midnight. Well, my mother had a rule like that. And it was no matter what you do, do not leave her alone in the kitchen for any extended period of time or she will end up shit-faced. At this point in my life, in my 20s, uh, the sort of cat and mouse game regarding my mother's drinking had kind of reached its peak. About the age that I could connect uh, my mother's slurred speech to the wine that she was drinking all the time, I started to make uh, little notations on her wine bottles with a ballpoint pen to see the level and how much she was drinking. She countered with a decoy bottle, and then she started using Dixie cups and hiding them in cupboards all throughout the kitchen. And then I would find those, and then I would pour them out. But eventually, her alcohol hiding got so sophisticated, I couldn't do anything about it. And it was really terrible. The thing is, like, no one was talking about it. Both my mother and father denied it. And if I ever tried to confront her about it, she would say things like, I haven't had a drink in months, or I enjoy a glass of wine, but I can't enjoy it because you get me so crazed. Or my personal favorite, her impassioned monologue, you have broken my heart. So there was this thing that we all had to deal with. No one was talking about it. And it was so hard to deal with. I would get this knot in my gut because I hated being around that person because that person was not my mother. See, to me, my mother in my mind's eye will always be a woman telling a really funny story in the kitchen with the phone cradled in between her inner neck with a menthol cigarette in her fingers and just laughing about something she said to, you know, her cousin or her aunt. Uh, my mother had a master's degree and my mother was a teacher and my mother was an actress. Um, one of my earliest memories of her is her performing in uh, the Stephen Sondheim musical company as Joanne, the Elaine Stritch part. And there's that one song, The Little Things You Do Together, where the whole cast sings, it's not so hard to be married. It's much the simplest of crimes. It's not so hard to be married. And then my mom in her like deep smoker's voice gets to say, I've done it three or four times. And everybody laughed and it was amazing. <laughs> and my favorite 
mom story is this is something that like she always denied but i know is true we were on a cruise and i was about 12 years old and there was a newlywed couple staying next to us on the cruise and those are very thin walls and they would have sex all the time and i was too young to know what the sounds were but we would hear this through the walls and apparently one night the woman kept saying come john come john come john and my mother shouted through the thin wall hurry up and come john so we can all get to sleep (laughs) so That was my mother. She was funny and she had a lot of gifts. But when she was drunk, she was just replaced by this copy of a copy of a copy of a person that I just did not want to be around. So I was going to avoid all of that by getting home at six o'clock. It was a perfect plan. I didn't even have the knot in my stomach. So I sat back. I relaxed put in my uh, earbuds, just listen to all my music. And I noticed that people were heading to the dining car, but I was like, you know what? I'm going to wait. It's not that long. I'll wait until I get home to see my parents. But then, unfortunately, something happened right around Syracuse, which is like almost to Rochester. The train slowed and then slowed and then stopped. And we didn't know what was going on. I thought it was temporary. Trains stop all the time, but it lasted for about an hour. Like it stopped like 4.30. So the sun was already set and we're just in the middle of nowhere. And it's like 5.30 and I realized like we're going to be here a while. So I had to call my parents and I called my mom and she answered. And the first thing she did when she answered the phone was said, Bob, pick up the phone. Because my father was always in a different room. And they got on and she said, do you need us to come pick you up at the train station? And I said, no, um, we're stuck and I'm going to be here a while, but I'll call you when I get to the Rochester train station. And I could hear in her voice that she was sober. So this was perfect. And then at the end of the call, she said something that she's been saying to me uh, since I was a little kid. And it was, I love you best in the whole wide world. To which I would reply, same here. Because when we started doing this, I was in kindergarten and my best friend, Austin Gilbert, always said, same here. And I wanted to copy everything he did. So she said that to me and I said, same here. And then no other reply would suffice. I always had to say, same here. And then sometime in my early 20s, she started saying it three times. So the call ended. I love you best in the whole wide world. Same here. I love you best in the whole wide world. Same here. I love you best in the whole wide world. Same here. And I will see you soon. And then we just sort of waited for what seemed like an eternity. Another hour went by and then another hour went by. And at this point, it's like dinner time. And I was planning to eat by now. But as I said, everybody went to the diner car already and there was no food and there wasn't even any good candy. So I had Skittles for dinner that night and my iPod ran out of batteries. So that was gone. And we're just waiting in the middle of nowhere and it's just so dark out and there's a certain kind of darkness to upstate new york in the winter i mean looking out the window the sky is just black like ink and i have no idea what's going on and at this rate i'm not going to get home until eight or nine or even later and my mother's going to start drinking by then so the knot starts to tighten in my stomach and what trickles back to us is the reason why we're here Now, you know that other line in Gremlins where Phoebe Cates says, while some people are opening up their presents, other people are opening up their wrists? Well, apparently someone had parked their car on the train tracks, the opposite train tracks, and the other Amtrak train coming the other way had hit it. So the reason that we were here was because the police officers were taking care of a crime scene of someone's suicide. So we kept waiting, but eventually we started to move. 
and we moved slowly and eventually I could see some lights and it was the blue and the red of the cop car and I could see some light from the flares and I could see some of the glass on the pavement and I made it back to Rochester. I called home. It was about 10 o'clock at night and I called home and my dad answered and I said, I'm here. Can you come pick me up? And he drove me home and I went home got inside and I went to the kitchen and my mother was sitting there at the kitchen table in her robe and she didn't get up or she couldn't get up. I don't remember which. And she looked at me and she said, hi, honey, do you want some dinner? And I said, no, I want to go out to eat because I just couldn't deal with it. I just couldn't handle it. And she knew I was mad, but I knew I couldn't say anything about it. And she just started crying and said to my father, why is he so awful to me? And I just held up my hands for the car keys and I said, dad, please. And I went out and I got something to eat somewhere else. And the rest of the trip went kind of like that. And I didn't see what happened in the years after this. I wouldn't find out until later, until I saw reports about it. Like I didn't see my mother get a DUI and I didn't see my mother get dismissed from work after repeated warnings about her drinking there. I didn't see the Dixie Cups graduate to airline bottles of vodka and I didn't see bottles of booze just magically disappear. And at one point, my father and I had a one-on-one -on -one conversation over the phone where he told me that my mother had been diagnosed with cirrhosis. He mentioned it once and then we never spoke of it again. And... I think that my parents thought that they were giving me a gift and the gift was to not worry about them or their health or to not feel guilty or to not feel the need to come home because they loved the fact that I lived in New York and was living my life the way I am. And I'll be honest, I love that gift. It's a wonderful gift, but it also robbed me of their lives and it robbed me of any ability to make peace. So about five years after the Amtrak Christmas, my father told me in late December that I should come home and I flew this time. And when I touched down, I went to the ICU and I saw my mother and she had a breathing tube. So her eyes were open, but I couldn't talk to her. And she saw me one last time. We were able to make eye contact. And I've heard that people hold on for one last thing, like one last holiday or one last New Year's. And then they pass away. And my mother saw me and I said, how are you doing? And she just shook her head. And then later that day, her eyes closed and they didn't open. Not even that night when I went back to see her in the ICU and I asked the nurse, how do you lower the bed so I can just hold her hand and, and talk to her and watch the TV? And then the next day, my father and I went back and it was December 23rd. It was the day that I usually go home for Christmas. And the doctors told us that my mother's organs were shutting down and we had to remove the breathing tube. So my father stood at her bedside and read a passage from the Bible. And I said to her, I love you best in the whole wide world. I love you best in the whole wide world. I love you best in the whole wide world. And then the beeping on her monitor slowed and slowed and stopped and she was gone. And I think about that Amtrak Christmas a lot because it was the most ominous of the Christmases that I went home for. But when looking back, I realized that they were all that dark. I always had that knot and that worry, but really what I had was hope that maybe this year would be different and then that hope would be crushed. And the thing is, I still go home and I have been for the past 11 years going home to Rochester, New York on December 23rd. But this time I go home to a different kind of family because unfortunately my father passed away six months after my mother from a stroke. 
But now when I go home to Rochester, I have a family of friends and, and their family and all these people who have basically adopted me every single Christmas. And I love Christmas and I always will. And when I go home, people who know the anniversary, they'll text me and they'll say, Hey, how you doing? How you holding up today? Are you feeling okay? I'm just thinking of you and your mom. And I love my mom, but the truth is I'm fine because the fact of the matter is I don't have to worry about her anymore. And that knot is finally untangled. Thank you. Wow. Rob Henty, everyone. Man, that was beautiful. Get off your sled and go to bed. Don't you ever tire. Throw a bone, I'm finally home. Curled up by the fire Snow is falling from the sky Like ashes from an urn Sweet dreams, my little one Now it's my turn Well, Christmas is going to the dogs We'd rather have two toys than you Looking very good, it's true So I'll just lay here and chew The first holiday season that I'm living on the East Coast, I feel like it's something I've been waiting for my entire life. I grew up on a farm in Wisconsin, obsessed with New York City. From movies and TV shows and books, New York City seems to me a place of constant activity and amazing possibility. A place anything could happen, especially New York City at the holidays. Our Christmas season kicked off with watching the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which ends at Macy's, the mecca of all department stores, the kind of place I have never been, so I cannot wait to experience that for real. And I was watching Miracle on 34th Street over and over again over the entire holiday season when I was a kid, which takes place at Macy's. And there are other movies that just make the New York City shops look so stunning. There's usually music playing from somewhere, people with packages. Then there's the Nutcracker at Lincoln Center, the Rockettes at Radio City Music Hall, ice skating at Rockefeller Plaza. I cannot wait to experience that holiday magic for myself. So when my best friend in college, Maddie, and I are planning our move to the East Coast, We have ideas about how we're going to spend this holiday. First of all, with our boyfriends, we will be going to see the tree at Rockefeller Plaza. We will go with our boyfriends to shop in the village. We will sit and drink chai latte while Nat King Cole sings chestnuts roasting on an open fire in the background in some cafe. That is the plan. Although it's been said many times, many ways, Merry Christmas. 
1981, we both move out to the East Coast. She gets an apartment on the Upper West Side. She's an actor. She hits the ground running, getting work. I am a music therapy intern at a psychiatric hospital in Cedar Grove, New Jersey. A short commuter bus ride from Manhattan, but a world away in every other sense. This is a sprawling campus of about 100 red brick buildings that are fading and sagging, yellowed windows. They house maybe a thousand patients. Many of them have lived there their entire lives. And uh, it's an unpaid internship, but they do give us housing, which is a building on the grounds of the hospital that is a hundred year old condemned house that looks like the Overlook Hotel in The Shining, only much more haunted. There's a big wraparound porch that has parts rotting out, a chandelier in the foyer in this place that probably at one time was a lovely building, and this chandelier is dripping a little bit more glass every day. We have keys for locks that do not work. There's six of us interns in the same hallway. We're the only people in the house, and thank God for them, because there was no way anybody could ever survive spending the night alone in this place. It's something that I have to do until May when I will finish my degree and I can get a real job that pays a real paycheck. And it's doing work, bringing music into people's lives that really need music. They need it. But the environment starts to get to me by Thanksgiving. I start to feel the sadness and heaviness of this place. And then I get a letter from my boyfriend saying he doesn't want to have a long distance relationship so he's not coming for any weekend visits. And I am completely broke. This is unpaid internship. So uh, the only money I have is from a side gig, a minimum wage job that I do on the weekends. Maybe I make 80 or $90 that has to last me for the week for shampoo and toothpaste and food and everything. So there will not be any Christmas shopping, that's for sure. And then Maddie is not around. She's doing a national tour of Annie, which is awesome. She's got real work, but she's not there. I do have a key to her apartment, however, and thank God for that. Because when this place really gets to me, I take that commuter bus, go to her apartment, and she has something I do not have, which is a television. And on that television is HBO, which in the early 80s is a revolution. Being able to watch movie after movie with no commercials So because I'm broke, this is sometimes my relief from that environment as I go to Maddie's apartment, watch movies with the sounds of New York City all around me. The Thursday after Thanksgiving, the phone rings in the hall. It's Maddie. I I, I, I'm she's so upset. I say, Maddie, what's the matter? What's wrong? She says, Mom, Pete left me while I was on tour. And I say, oh, no, I'm so sorry. Oh, my gosh. He broke up with you while you were out of town? That's awful. She says, and the tour ended. Oh, my God, I'm so sorry. These non-union tours, you know, they just end. It's terrible. You're, oh, I'm so sorry. And she says, uh, and he stole from me and he, he took the television. And I think, no, not the TV. But I don't say that to Maddie, of course. She says, you have to come for the weekend. I can't be alone. I'm freaking out. I don't feel right. You have to come and be with me. And I'm thinking, if I don't work this weekend, I have $20 that has to last me for 10 days. 
and it isn't going to last me for 10 days. But another part of me knows if I say no to Maddie, that's not in the holiday spirit on any level. So I say, of course I'll come, of course I'll come, and I'm scared and I'm not happy, but I know it's the right thing. So I take the commuter bus and I'm walking up Broadway because I don't have enough money to waste on the subway. And I hear White Christmas playing over some loudspeaker. And I see decorations in the store windows, tinsel, lights. And my heart feels so heavy. And it hurts my eyes to look at all of this. This is not the magic I had imagined. But I have a blue, 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 blue Christmas. I get to Maddie's apartment, and she's hunched over the phone with her hands on the receiver, and I wrestle it away from her. She's waiting for Pete to call. I say, you don't need that. We have each other. We are going to get through this. We are independent women. Did you eat anything? She says, no. So I give her food. She falls asleep. She wakes up at 2 a.m. I say, have you showered? She says, no. She takes a shower. It's like having a newborn. I sleep when she sleeps. I feed her. I clean her up. By Saturday late afternoon, she's a little more coherent. I say, Maddie, is it okay if I go back to New Jersey and go to work tomorrow? Because I have no money and I need to make some money. She says, you can't leave me. You can't leave me. Just please stay tomorrow night. I have to go to work tomorrow. Go with me and just hang out with me, please. Okay, I know it's the right thing. I stay. She has a side gig when she's not acting, which is co-checking at a place called Charlie O's on 57th Street. So I go with her there. There's no room for me in the co-checking space. There's all these people coming in. It's the brunch crowd. So I sit at the bar just for moral support, for object constancy, so she can see me there feeling sad and resentful with these happy families and couples and their packages from shopping. And I see there are two trays of drinks in front of me that are sitting there for a long time. And the hostess keeps passing me very angrily, looking at me, looking at the drinks, looking at me. And I'm thinking, she's mad because I'm not ordering something because that's not happening. And then she comes over to me and she says, would you take that tray of drinks over to that table? It's called table eight. I say, me? She says, yes, please. Just two people called in sick. You see how busy it is. Just please take those drinks over to that table. I say, okay. I take the drinks and it's a a man with his wife and looks like a college age kid and maybe his mom. And they're really angry. I set the drinks down. I'm shaking. He says, you know, we've been waiting here a very long time. And I say, I I understand. I'm, I'm very, very sorry. And he says, well, the service at Charlie O's is terrible. I say, I, I understand. I, I get it. And he says, well, you need to take our order. And I say, I'll get some. And he says, you'll get someone? And I go, oh. I'll go over to the hostess. I say, they need somebody to take their order. She gives me one of those notepads that waiters write their orders on. She says, please, please, just take their order. Help me out. So I go back to the table. I'm shaking. I take their order. He's so angry. And I go back and I see what the other waiters are doing, which is clothes pinning the piece of paper to a string that goes between the bar and the kitchen. Then I take a tray of drinks over to table seven, as requested by the hostess. And I'm setting them down. And this is a younger couple with a middle school age kid. And the lady says, 
you know, the service here is terrible. We've been waiting a really long time. And I say, I know, I'm so sorry. Charlie O's is very sorry. And she says, you know, there's a draft here that's been on us this entire time while we waited. Can you have to do something about that draft? And I say, I will. I promise you I will do something about that draft. But I have to tell you, I don't know who to talk to because I don't actually work here. And she says, you don't work here? And I go, I say, no, I got drafted into waitressing because people called in sick and you see all these people, it's so busy. She laughs and her husband laughs. I say, I'll take your order. I'll take care of the draft. So I close pin that piece of paper to the string. And then I go to another table and they complain about something. And I say, I know this is crazy, but I don't even work here. And they say, that's, whoa that's nuts. And I say, I know it's bonkers, but you know, I I got drafted into waitressing and they think it's pretty funny. So the food comes out for the first table and they're scary people. I set the food down, go to the next table. I bring their food. They're a little more relaxed about it because they know I don't actually work there. And when they go to pay their bill, they say, you know, you gave us a really good story today. Happy holidays. And they give me $35 in cash. Oh, that feels very nice. So the next table, when they're checking out, I say, isn't this so crazy that I don't even work here? And they say, I know. And I say, yes. And I live on the grounds of a psychiatric hospital in a condemned building where I'm an intern just until next May. And they say, that's wild. And they give me a nice juicy $30 tip. At another table, I say, yeah, uh, music therapy. It's an unusual field. You know, doesn't pay a lot. I'll probably owe more in student loans than I can make in a year. But people need music, no matter where they are in their lives. They give me a big, juicy tip. And at the end of my shift, because now I call it a shift, I have $210 in cash. And Charlie O's gives me dinner. So Maddie and I walk out of there, and we part ways. She's in a little better shape, and I'm walking down 7th Avenue. And I'm hearing the song, We Need a Little Christmas, playing over some loudspeaker. And I feel this wad of cash in my pocket. And I'm thinking, nothing about this weekend is anything like I had imagined. Just like nothing about this holiday season is anything like I would have imagined. But I think today, I actually experienced some of that New York City magic. I know I did the right thing to come and stay with Maddie. I know that was the holiday thing to do and the friend thing to do. But also, I had one of those New York City experiences that can only happen in the moment when you just let it occur and you say yes to it. Maybe I'm waiting for this holiday thing to happen to me like I'm in a movie, when what you really have to do is generate that holiday spirit. You have to create it and make it happen. And that's what I have to do with my patients. And I'm on that decamp bus going back to the Overlook Hotel, (laughs) to a world, an environment I know is going to be the same sad place that it was. And I know that I'm going to make it through this to the end. I know that I'm going to make it through because I just experienced that little magic and I'm going to use music and I'm going to keep on doing what I do. I'm going to make it because I just had my own little Miracle on 57th Street.
for this week's episode, folks. This is Rend Collective behind me now, and we just heard from Jude Trader Wolf, Jude's own wonderful show, Totally True Things, a socially conscious storytelling show, will resume in 2021, and you can find information at lifestage.me. And before Jude, we heard a little bit of Christmas is Going to the Dogs by Eels. Very special thanks to all of our audio editors, especially Jeff Barr for putting this epic episode together, but also John LaSala, Chris Gersbeck, and Samir Zarif, and special thanks to a few of our audiophile friends out there who gave us lots of great ideas for kooky, off-the-beaten-path songs and sound collages to use, especially John Nelson and Matt Bomar. And hey, everyone, J.C. Cassis, our business director, has a new EP out called Four on the Floor. Now, on the episode Holiday Stories 11, we played J.C.'s song Christmas is Bullshit. You guys absolutely loved it. You ate it up. Well, Christmas is Bullshit is still available wherever you get your music. But this year, so are J.C.'s seven all-new original songs on the EP called Four on the Floor, Super fun, super catchy, super sexy pop, and very JC. So go look for Four on the Floor wherever you get your music. Don't forget I do story coaching. I advise people on producing shows or writing memoirs, help people prep presentations or toast, all kinds of guidance for all sorts of creative endeavors at kevinallison.com. And finally, are you following us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram? We're at Risk Show. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. And on Twitter, check out Story Studio NYC. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. The most glorious time of the year. The kids silly belling and everyone telling you that time fear. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the hap- happiest season of all. It's a chance to meet evenings and every meetings when friends come to call. It's the happiest, happiest season of all. There's a crafting and fellows for toasting and tabling to season it's all. It's 
Diamonds is stories and no business glories and beautifully seen long ago. It's in my happiest season of all. The time of the seasons and other happy meetings and friends come to call. It's a happy, happiest season with this most glorious time. It's a most wonderful time of the year.